Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, a weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Cyrus Monk, who is a pro cyclist and cycling coach, Damian Roos, who is founder of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast and professional cycling coach, and then there's also me, Dr. Jason Boynton, sports scientist and cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is recorded live in the presence of an online audience on the Clubhouse app, so you can join in and ask questions or participate in any of the discussions as we are having them. Uh, This week, we will be discussing all things cycling warm-up with Damien. So um, just take a quick minute here. We We'll uh, probably this week try to keep the questions on topic until the very end. And uh, intermittently, I'll go ahead and open the floor up uh, to people who are in the audience that would like to make comments or have questions. So just raise your hands and we will get to you during these breaks. So first off the bat, I just kind of wanted to mention briefly this seems to happen a lot with our podcast where we record and then the next day i see an see an article or we see an article on what we've recorded confirmation about. bias and you start writing it down yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks thanks for putting that out i was like thinking about that i was like but it's an interesting anecdote yes i was like this is definitely confirmation bias um and so uh, yeah, so on the we recorded last week on the 15th, and on that day, there was an article that came out in Bike Radar that was discussing critical power, uh, and the t- article was titled, Could Critical Power Be a Better Alternative to FTP for Training? And that was written by Tom Bell, and I gave it a, I gave it a read. It was a pretty good article, um, and it's, it's interesting to listen to someone else kind of give the argument for critical power. And I think I, I think I'm on board, guys. Uh, it's definitely on the thing to do. It's just a matter of when the time is going to happen to make the switch. And um, I actually wrote down today a kind of a to-do list or a pathway uh, for getting myself out of the kind of training peaks metrics and moving into something that's more science. So I've at least gotten to that point. When that will happen, I don't know. I've got a bunch of other projects on right now, but yeah, definitely want to move that way now. Uh, I don't know if I'll bring you guys with me or not, but um, yeah, I think uh, that was... It's probably the last straw. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, this, this, this has got to happen now. So anyways, um, it, it was a, it was a good article. Um, it, it was leaning on the side yeah. of more of a how to, which is kind of what I was looking for. So mm-hmm. a bit of an explanation of how that would integrate a bit better into coaching and things. I will say my observations for CP versus FTP is the science people are on the CP side. So you're just like joining mm-hmm. your people Jason, if you move over. Yeah, we've had this discussion a bunch on here. And I think had I come into coaching after my PhD, this is the way I would have had had it. But now I'm, I've been in using the Training Peak system now for 13 years, I think. So quite a while. So it's going to be a little bit of dismantling, I think. And I think I'll still use the platform to in, to work with my athletes, to interface with them. 
And then that's going to have to be the thing too, is to figure all that out. But I think, I think I've made this uh, point with you too, Damien. It's at some point you got to put the big boy, big boy pants on and, and move <laughs> along. But again, I say, I say I'm going to do it. I just don't know when the, you know, a lot of other projects have got a couple papers I'm trying to get published. So after those, that'll be one of the things I want to work on. So yeah, Cyrus. Yeah, what are you um, thinking? Basically, yeah, where I where I finished it off last week. In that, if it's easy enough, then I will do it. Basically, once the actual the effort you're putting in turns into results for the athletes that you're working with, then I think it will be worthwhile. And also, just some kind of interface like Training Peaks to to use critical power for something like that because Training Peaks is quite easy to use, which I think is why it's the most popular coaching platform. Um, something like that, which is using critical power, would be enough to get me to flick the switch and go over in that direction. Yeah, at the, at the very least, while I'm doing it, I'd like to be dropping some breadcrumbs out there so people don't have to do as much work to kind of transfer over if that's what they want to do. But like I said, it all comes, it's, I'm looking at it, this is a big project and it's just going to be come down to time, but I, I think I want to do it now. So, yep. Um, but that's all I have on that. I just wanted to kind of say how funny it was that we had a whole episode on thresholds last, uh, week and, and then right on the day we recorded it, this bike radar, uh, article came out and Damien, you were the one that found that. So good good find and uh, thanks for sending me that uh, article for sure but um anyways for the main topic today damien's on this one and he's gonna tell us all about warm-ups and we're gonna have that discussion there so we will open that up and uh i'll let you go to town here cool now i've written down a whole bunch of things from my research and stuff uh but any point just break in if you have any comments or anything but, uh, oh, we do that anyways, right? Well, we'll see. We'll see. I may be so convincing here that you don't need to. I tend, I tend to just ask the next question that you were going to say anyway, because it's just on my mind and I haven't read through the script <laughs> thoroughly enough each time. So that, that'll be me just breaking in for the point that you're about to go to anyway. <laughs> But it's, it's a good, we actually, I don't think you were in the chat when we were discussing this, but that's actually really, uh, Damien and I were t- just talking about this before we jumped in here, and it's actually, you doing that is actually a really good kind of narrative point I was, while I was figuring out the editing. You're like the voice of the listener. When are you going to get to this <laughs> yeah. point, Jason? <laughs> Cyrus is the impatient child in, yeah. the, in the podcast. I just want the, the practical outcome. <laughs> And then the, I just want the TLDR yeah. that too long didn't listen, didn't too long didn't read, but the too well, long didn't listen. Yes, thanks, Melinda. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. <laughs> Snap! Here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> yep, I love it. All right, I'm going to get into it. Cool. And I'm, I'm going to start by saying that the warm up is one of those things that, as a meta analysis of the effects of warming up on physical performance, pointed out more than a decade ago there is a surprisingly limited amount of good research evaluating whether a warm-up improves performance. And I'll definitely add that it's still kind of the case, especially with endurance events. We will get on to that a bit later, though. But 
Um, so as a result of this, warm-up procedures are usually based on trial and error experience of a coach or an athlete rather than on scientific study. So it's kind of a bit of a challenge, I guess, for us today. Mm-hmm. The lack of so-called good research is likely, from my opinion, due to uh, warm-up protocols consisting of different types. So there's active, passive, and specific, and there's different structures, varied intensity, duration, and recovery. And so this makes it really hard to summarize the findings. But in the years since this paper, this 2010 paper, sports scientists... Was that Bishop's paper? No, he was 2003. This was 2010. There's another review in 2015. These are kind of the landmark points. Okay, on the yep. journey. Okay. Um, so uh, the reason why I ask that is because what you were saying was exactly what it was, was he saying in his review. So we're seven years after his review and they're saying the same thing. This seems to be a consistent, at least through that point of history, that yes, there agree. is a lot of good research on Absolutely that. agree. So, um, yeah. And we'll, we'll ask the question why it may be similar today, I guess. Um, but we're going to go back to Bishop to start with. I don't know if he's the first person to kick this off, but his warm-up one and warm-up two uh, went into a lot of detail Mm -hmm. and they were really good. So they're a great place to start. Um, We're going to look at a bit of the changes in performance following a warm-up. We're going to have a take on optimal warm-ups and we're going to discuss whether they're they're even necessary at all. And Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, Bishop stated... Uh, in his warm-up one, that the aim of a warm-up is to physically and mentally prepare athletes for high-intensity efforts and thereby improves performance and helps avoid injury. As far as the science behind these claims, you can find some good evidence of the physiological changes for warming up. There's plenty of research out there that cites a long list of benefits related to warm-ups. These are things like increasing muscle temperature, including including more rapid metabolic reactions, decreased stiffness of muscles and joints, increased nerve conduction rate and others. And there's also benefits that don't have anything to do with temperature as well. And these are dilated blood vessels that increase blood flow to your muscles. And it might be worth pointing out here, this is interruption one. Number one, <laughs> we'll just count them off, uh, that the, those benefits will differ depending on the length of exercise that is going to be performed after the exercise, right? So um, so the joint stiffness one is going to help potentially for very, very short efforts, but not necessarily for a really, really long effort, like a Tour de France stage. Uh, yes, right? yes. So is that, is and, that and I think that will correct? be a general yeah. rule of thumb that we'll probably end up with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you, un- you explaining it and under- like, if we understand it on what's happening and why it's important, I think is part of this as well. Um, mm-hmm. and in this, this first warm up one, Bishop goes into the potential mechanisms and effects of passive warm up on exercise performance. He first makes this distinction. So we're clear that there's two categories two warm up of techniques and passive warm up and active warm up. It may seem obvious when you look at it, but uh, he's doing that for a reason and he's trying to split them out so that you can see what changes are happening due to which one. Um, but just to be clear, passive warm-up includes raising muscle or core temperature by some external means while active warm-up utilizes exercise. So this distinction when it comes down to it, it's splitting the mechanisms we see and between temperature-related changes 
and non-temperature related changes. So temperature related changes, uh, decreased resistance of muscles and joints, greater release of oxygen from hemoglobin and myoglobin, speeding of metabolic reactions, increased nerve conduction rate. So we mentioned those, but they're the ones due to temperature. And then the non-temperature ones, increased blood flow to muscles, elevate of baseline oxygen consumption, post-activation potentiation, psychological effects, and increased preparedness. And these are pretty sciencey terms. Yeah. Jason, have you thought about this stuff? Can you give us something in a bit more simple terms of what's happening to the body when you're warming up? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely the warming up the body in the sense of the muscle is getting warmer, and then when the as the and this is happening because uh, of the inefficiency that occurs during metabolism, where it's roughly twenty five percent work and seventy five percent is of is lost of that energy conversion is lost as heat. So you can take that heat that is lost during that that metabolism and it can be used to warm up the surrounding muscle and at the the very very molecular level what you're looking at is uh, an increase of enzyme kinetics but basically what you're looking at is is it's just like when you turn up the heat on on water and you can watch that water the movement in the water increase, or if you were going to put dye inside of uh, hot water versus cooler water, you would see that that dye would move around quicker. The diffusion would uh, increase, and so, and the same kind of idea here. If if you think of muscle cells as sacks of water with all all these proteins and metabolites and and enzymes kind of running around in there, it's just it's just a bunch of it's just random chance that that these things are coming together and a reaction is occurring. So if you increase that chance of things happening uh, with by adding heat, then the reac- reaction happens better at the cellular level. But then the problem is, is that you have this happy spot where you can get too far. And the reason for that is that if, if you get too much heat in a muscle, then the proteins there's hydrogen bonds within the proteins and they can denature and so for and at the cellular level and in a lot of other things form equals function so if your form of these enzymes or these proteins start to starts to change then they don't become as effective and this is why we have us like a systemic thermoregulatory system of removing that excess heat and and bringing it out to the skin so it can be lost to the environment. Uh, so that's just kind of like to be thinking at what's happening at the molecular level. So this other bit with the oxygen, hemoglobin, and myoglobin disassociation, that's in, I'm sure Cyrus had to do all that during his undergrad where uh there's conditions so hemoglobin is this you know massive molecule that that grabs onto oxygen that comes out of the lungs and transports it to the myoglobin in the, in the muscles and there's a increased temperature uh increased acidity uh, and there's something else in there too if, if cyrus if you remember but those all make 
make it so that oxygen is lost from the hemoglobin much easier. So that transfer from hemoglobin to myoglobin can happen quicker. And so this is, again, another advantage of kind of increasing the temperature in the muscle so that transfer of oxygen from the blood to the muscle can, can happen more effectively. Um, and the other thing I kind of touched on in there is the is oxygen consumption. And, and we'll talk, probably talk a lot about VO2 and oxygen consumption, same thing, right? And how that relates to warm-ups, especially when you get into longer warm-ups and the importance of increasing oxygen consumption before you get into your primary exercise bout. But the thing that I think of about this, and Cyrus, I keep saying your name. I haven't stopped enough to get you get any feedback from you. But um, I mean, I go right to the Fick equation, and that helps me think a lot about this whole system. And you probably know the, the Fick equation as well. Yeah. Or am I putting it's, you on the it's spot? Not yeah. Fresh in my mind. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. That's okay. So the 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 Fick equation is basically the equation the equation for oxygen consumption. And basically, oxygen consumption equals cardiac output times the difference in oxygen consumption or different in oxygen at the arterial level versus yeah. the venous level. So yeah, basically, I know the one you're talking about. I just didn't know the, the name yeah. there. But yep. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then that basically is just a really nice math- mathematical expression for what is happening so you, the first thing you see on that equation is there's the the split between peripheral and central um for oxygen consumption so as soon as you see that split between peripheral and central and you're thinking about increases in oxygen consumption you can think about like well what's happening at the periphery of the muscle that is in helping or increasing oxygen and you can one of the things we've already talked about is that increase in uh, enzyme reaction rate but there's all these things and so when people hear vo2 they might think they'll just almost like it's this thing that's almost like heart rate you think of heart rate and you're like oh the heart rate goes up and it's just this metric on my uh bike computer and that increases but when when I hear VO2 is increasing, I'm thinking stroke volume is increasing, heart rate's increasing, muscle temperature is probably increasing. There's all these other things that are going to play into that. So VO2 is a is a good represent representation of a lot of kind of metabolic things that are going on in in the muscle. So I'll just probably just leave it at that. I as far as trying to give some explanations to the scientific terms, unless there was anything in there, Damien, that you wanted me to. Uh, touch on the vo2 stuff is the stuff that i didn't actually do a lot of deep diving into the stuff that you know Mm -hmm. but there is a lot of work around uh prior exercise bouts before secondary bouts of exercise and um and a lot of work in what's happening to that system when you're warming up i i've just didn't dive into it because i found that as far as the research is concerned they're kind of only getting it nailed, um, like what type of work to do for, say, up to 30-minute efforts afterwards. It's, it's really limited as to how far they've progressed in that, and it's not denying that that plays a role. It just hasn't been actually pushed mm-hmm. through and the evidence isn't, isn't there. Um, 
mm-hmm. but it but it, it, it was it's kind of hard in the field to measure vo2 in your warm-up to make sure that the vo2 is increasing for your bout as well yeah but, yeah it's not yeah. not easily accessible um but it, it's it's kind of the same thing with intervals where you have like the, what does the rest period actually mean right like between the intervals is it relates to the physiology but you might be able to get similar physiology if you were to increase the rest periods but uh but increase the intensity during during the rest period so yeah it's so the what i my take on from that bishop paper was you know he gave some rudimentary you'll probably get into this suggestions but um yeah it was just kind of based around you know, to make sure uh, for longer warmups to make sure that your oxygen consumption is still going to be raised at the beginning of that effort. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see since you were like lo- looking through some newer papers, um, like what they were, were really how that contrast between the arguments that Bishop was making versus what you were coming across. So we'll see. Yeah, we shall see. Um, yeah. The only thing, other thing I want to add um, from that first Bishop paper is the uh, is the argument for the benefit of warm-ups for psychological preparation. Uh, and he, he mm. says that it's possible that psychological mechanisms contribute to reported improvements in performance. He didn't have a lot of papers to mm-hmm. back it up. There's one on being hypnotized to forget that they warmed up um, mm. back in mm. like 1960-something. Wow. Um, so we kind of here is where we fall back on that practice thing, the an- anecdotes that um, for me – the confidence of athletes um, is really important and warming up on a day before a competition plays into that. Um, I think it's it's becomes part of a routine and the process also helps athletes narrow the focus and get into the right headspace for competition. Do you agree with that, Cyrus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely would agree that, yeah, for it's part of just a routine in any sport has been shown to improve performance the thing i think you have to be careful and i'm sure this will come up again later and something i tell athletes to be mindful of is not relying on the warm-up and having your warm-up routine for every race because often it's just not logistically possible to do and if you have an athlete that thinks that they have to have this exact warm-up routine every event and they don't get to do it then they're arriving at the start line thinking that they've all of a sudden at a huge disadvantage um, when in reality the effect size is going to be quite small as we'll probably see in in these papers. So I think, yeah, the important thing with an athlete and why I don't tend to to be too strict with the same warm-up each time is that sometimes it's, it's genuinely just not possible to, depending on where your race is starting, what the conditions are, if you for any reason you're you're late to the the race so for that reason there is the psychological risk there as well not just the benefit you have been reading my notes haven't you uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) um uh i would say something similar to cyrus we'll probably get into like the races you'd want to have a warm-up in versus the races you wouldn't want to have a warm-up in but yeah think about the just the stress reduction at at the beginning of a race for a rider if they don't have to worry about the warm up as much, if, if for example, if I'm going to do a five hour road ride, uh, road race, and uh, and the first hour is flat and sitting in the group, 
I'm not going to stress about the warm up. I mean, would you? Yeah, agree, definitely. Cyrus? Um, I think we'll let Damien go because that that's coming. That's yeah, going to be yeah. my my big spiel at the end. And after he's done <laughs> yeah. and presented us with all the the science, I'm going to present him what with actually happens. So all right, all right. We'll let Damien get back to it, or I'll steal everything. <laughs> Now, so this is the shift now going from um, David Bishop's paper one, warm up one to warm up two. The focus changes from what's happening to performance. And that's why it's called performance changes following active warm up and how to structure the warm up. Um, the headlines from this paper, just to make it really clear, effects of a passive warm up on performance. If the event duration is equal to or less than 10 seconds, performance improved by up to 6%. If the event duration is 10 seconds to five minutes, Performance not improved or may be impaired. If the event duration is equal to five minutes or longer, performance not improved or may be impaired. And it's fairly similar for the effects of an active warm up. That's passive. Yep. Yep. And in an active warm up, just when, just for us, you know, uh, endurance athletes, uh, event duration equal to five minutes or longer, variable results. Mm -hmm. So back in 2003, nothing to lock down to say that it, it's actually going to help performance it goes into a bit more detail of course um around all of this uh and he's, he says here while active warm-up has been reported to improve endurance performance it may have a detrimental effect on endurance performance if it causes a significant increase in thermoregulatory strain uh, which is your area jason which is nice but i'm i'll keep moving forward here yep and he just goes on, and this is where he has recommendations. And I, th- I think that um, we'll touch on those a little bit later because first, that was we're talking 2003, so it's nearly 20 years ago that mm-hmm. these came out. Yep. And in the years since these papers, sports scientists have been hard at work refining their understanding of physiological processes underlying successful yep. pre-race routines. Before we jump to the latest reviews and studies, let's talk about what's been released since then. And this is where I'm even going to jump over that 2010 one that I mentioned right at the start to 2015 and a review called Warm-Up Strategies for Sport and Exercise Mechanisms and Applications. And they cited 170 references and lots of them found performance benefits. But the strongest evidence is, again, for sprint and power sports, not endurance sports. And this really is the frustrating part for cycling is that there's a lack of studies examining the influence of active warm-up on simulated endurance competition events. Then I did find a study in 2017 that looked at performance in a 5K time trial, but they found no benefit of either a short or a long warm-up before a 5K cycling time trial. And in fact, the researchers state Warm-up length was not impactful on 5K time trial performance or during the first kilometer of the time trial in trained cyclists. And really, this is a sign of things to come Mm -hmm. because finally, I found two papers from 2020 that give us some research we can add to our evidence-based approach. Were they the FTP papers? No. Uh, Oh, okay. One is from some researchers in Norway, and then one is from some researchers in Spain. Okay. The first one's on cross-country skiing sprints, and they look at long traditional warm-up versus short specific ones. And I will say this isn't an endurance event. It's only three and a half minutes long, and they do several of these over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it 
gives us a, a bit of a start around what this kind of what the new science might be in this area. So mm-hmm. instead of a 30 minute warm up here, uh, of mostly easy skiing with five minutes of moderate and three minutes of high intensity efforts. The skiers simply did eight progressively harder 100 meter sprints with a minute rest in between them. And the idea was to harness the metabolic and neuromuscular benefits of raising muscle temperature while minimizing the effects of cumulative fatigue. And the result? Anybody guess the result? Was there a difference? I'm going to guess no. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't have made it here otherwise. Yeah. No difference in performance in the 1.3-kilometer sprint. Uh, no difference in heart rate, lactate, perceived exertion. So the choice of warm-up here just didn't matter at all. Yeah. And the, the coming from this, you know, like, what does this mean? Uh, I don't know. It's very specific here. I, okay, you got an answer, Jason? I have, I have some thoughts. Um, and just shooting off the cuff here. I think if you look at a lot of the old research around warm-ups, it's probably done, been done on mostly male college-age sports science students that were probably relatively fit. And if I was going to use my pattern-seeking monkey brain, I would think I think these newer ones are mostly with trained athletes. Am I right? Yes. Especially if they're coming out of Norway. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, I mean, there's a lot of thermoregulatory differences that are going to be in highly trained endurance athletes versus your average college student that you know plays handball or whatever. So that might be part of it. And I think actually Bishop kind of pointed that out in his review back in 2000. Three, I mean, this is probably a good discussion point of the differences in the warm-up between elite and highly trained uh, endurance athletes versus, you know, actively fit person. It could be the fact that if they're using warm-ups that they would, that would have been traditionally successful for, or traditional, not in the traditional, like, in the sense that other athletes have done this, but traditional in the sense that they're looking at old research uh, that use these, uh, the model around, um, based off of college students, they might not be intense enough for them or long enough for them potentially. So, uh, just a thought that was just one thought I kind of had around that. It was like, well, this is interesting how we're getting into no differences in these in these warm up. I think it's a valid point that you're raising with the the population groups here, and it seems we they're getting more and more focused. And then again, let's go. We can go to the next study here, and this time they did used again. They used uh, trained athletes and cyclists. So this mm-hmm. this is this is going to be maybe this is the start of actually looking at very specific. I think uh, when you dig into a bit of the studies and there's a lot of work around this sprint stuff, team sports. Like it's very common to study all these other areas. Endurance sports just seems to be lagging overall here. Yeah. Um, but the 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 new study was kind of for me setting out the question of does a warm up really matter at all? And uh, there were researchers from the European University of Madrid where they compared two warm-up protocols before a 20-minute cycling time trial. 
So again, not not super long endurance stuff, but this is the best we really have at the moment. Is that a Branko Gill paper? Yes, yes, that's it. Okay. Um, the two warm up protocols. The first one involved cycling for ten minutes at sixty percent of VO two max, approximately seventy percent of FTP. And number two was uh, five minutes at the same intensity, followed by three all out ten second sprints. Which uh, these are pretty real world to me. This is something that potentially I could see someone doing. Um, but uh, the shorter warm-up with the sprints aim to maximize muscle temperature benefits while triggering, triggering an effect called post-activation potentiation. This, this was new to me. Uh, it's a supposed enhancement of strength and speed following intense muscle contractions. And again, anyone guess what happened? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I read that, the abstract of that paper today, so I already know. But yeah. <laughs> Say it, Cyrus. Cyrus, you want to give it a guess? No change. No, no, yeah. no difference. No difference between the performance with the between the two warm ups. And uh, the cool thing, though, about this study is that they included a control condition in which the cyclists did no warm up whatsoever. And mm-hmm. the kicker here is that there was also no difference in performance in the no warm up group. Yeah, yeah. And that that's that's interesting to me because of the whole psychological side of it. Cuz we were talking about, you know, people get psyched out cuz it's just so ingrained in the culture just like potentially having a massage a massage, a masseuse during the Tour de France like do you want to be the guy that doesn't have the masseuse working on your legs even though it may or may not work? Same thing here. Do you want to be the guy that isn't going to do your warm up? So, but obviously, I, I would imagine they were—they're blinding them from their power in this. So, and hopefully, they're giving them some kind of verbal encouragement. I don't know, but um, but yeah, that's really interesting. That not only did it um, not make a difference, but it also overcame the negative, the potential negative placebo effect that you would have by not doing a warm up. Does that make sense? Uh, hopefully. Yep. 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 I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach Dr. Jason Boynton, professional cyclist and cycling coach Cyrus Monk, and myself, Damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of this Cycling Science Digest. If you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do, check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts. Also, a reminder that you can be part of the show too. We host the show live on Clubhouse every week. Just search Clubhouse for the Cycling Performance Club and you'll see our scheduled room. And with that, let's get back into it. And so what does this mean? What does this mean? That was kind of what was popping into my head um and i've got some stuff down here that there are some costs that i touched on before but touched on before that they burn up uh like the warm-ups themselves like if we do want to talk about negatives just so we have them they do uh burn up some of your energy reserves and they may leave you with lingering traces of metabolic fatigue uh in hot conditions warm-ups uh can raise your core temperature prematurely, mm-hmm. which may eventually slow you down sooner. Mm-hmm. Correct? 
Yep. Yep. Uh, so getting the balance right between these competing effects may be trickier than we all realize. And that's especially true for longer endurance events, including the 20-minute time trial in this study. The In the longer event, the less you gain you actually gain less from being metabolically optimized right at the start of the race and the more you lose from burning through some of your stored energy. So that's something you like you started talking about that Jason. We can probably talk about that now. The benefit of warming up or the negative like what's the what's the comparison of how much you should warm up for how uh, long your event is. Well Actually, there's a really, I think, key thing to think about here is, um, so for example, uh, there's Tour of Margaret River here, and basically right off from the start on one of the stages that they have every once in a while is like a big climb. And in your in your head, you might think, well, okay, well, this is potentially going to be a two and a half hour race, but the selection happens on that climb. And so that if that and this and that effort is maybe five minutes long. And when we're talking about going back to Bishop's paper, when these, you know, they have the short length, which is like ten seconds or less. You have the intermediate length, which was ten seconds to five minutes, and then you have the five minute plus, which would be the long, uh, long ex- exercise bouts. And they were talking about how warm ups affected each one of those lengths, and and for endurance cyclists, we'd be thinking about the five plus, right? But actually we want to be thinking about maybe potentially that five minutes in the beginning and warming up specifically for that, because that is going to be a, a selection. Uh, so in terms of, so you context. Want, yes, context is important. Yes. Yes. It's, it's context strategy, that type of thing is going to be really important. Had, and like I said, was saying before, if, if, if you have an hour and on the flat or 20 minutes or whatever, where you're just sitting there um, and you don't suspect the other teams are going to be hammering it off the gun, then you can probably get your warm up in the race for a road race, right? So we're probably a little bit road centric. You get into something like mountain biking or cyclocross where the, the whole shot matters and how you know, those first laps are really important. Environmental temperature aside, there's probably something about at least thinking about how to be optimized for that effort. Whether or not a warm-up is in that or not, I don't know. Uh, potentially, I think with the increasing of the oxygen consumption, I would think there's something to be said there for that. Um, but, yeah, is I mean, you you bring up some really interesting ports, points, and it does bring up, these papers also bring up some interesting points. Um but something also to kind of consider is, was there anything that showed that it was detrimental to do, you know, a 10 minute warm up at 50% VO2 max or for people at home, that'd probably be around endurance. If you can't show anything that it hurts, then maybe you want to hedge your bets. That's another way to kind of look at it too. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, uh, Jason, you've, your point before which is what i was going to get to about when your effort is going to be in the race is really important so one way that we'll always have it each race 
the one day races here where there's generally a breakaway and then it's caught towards the end and it's a select group and a finish there the d the director team director will always tell you to just look around at who else is warming up because they'll be <laughs> the ones going for the breakaway and they're also the ones that will be arriving on the start line with like less kit because they're going to be going straight in the breakaway and they're already warm from their warm-up whereas the ones all rugged up have been the ones just sitting in the car and then they're just jumping out because their effort's going to be in the last half an hour of a race. And then like an example of this is at the the Tour de France, I know Harry Sweeney, who's riding for Lotto, who I was speaking to throughout, and we might be able to get him on in future to give us his rundown of what happened there. But he, Caleb Ewan, crashed out obviously in the first week and his plan initially with that Lotto team would have been to always be good for the last 10 kilometres to 2 kilometres. So he's not being optimised for the start line, whereas that completely changed once he once, once Caleb crashed out and Harry's then just looking for early breaks. And he, the second two weeks, is on the ergo doing a warm-up before every single stage because he's going to have to sprint off the start line to get in a break. Is or, he from Queensland? Yeah, he's from Brisbane. I think I, I think it's funny you mentioned that because I think I saw our uh, colleague, Christopher, um, he was interviewing him at the beginning of a race on, on his trainer. So that's like all this whole like, yeah. full circle here. Yeah, but there's, there's not a chance he would have been on the trainer if he was just doing the lead out at the end of the race. Whereas those mountain stages with a short neutral zone, and that's the other thing to take into account is a lot of the time in road races at a professional level, you've got a neutral zone of 10K. So mm-hmm. whatever warm-up you have, there's essentially just a washout period there of yep. 20 minutes on the bike plus the 10 minutes on the start line. So you've lost half an hour at that point anyway mm-hmm. um, from whatever you've done. So a lot of those effects are going to be minimal anyway. So that's why you'll see a lot of riders um, – Basically, at the professional level, it's rare to see people warming up unless it's those specific examples where they need to be 100% on the start line, ready to do a maximal effort for a short time period. Oh, do we want to open open up questions or? Yes, uh, far away. Yeah, we'll just take a second to see if anyone in the audience has any questions about warm-ups or comments. Uh, we, we do have a hand up there. Oh, okay. 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 Here we go. Hi, just so you know, Nidish, when you ask your question or your comment, I we don't have the room mic'd up, so I'll have to repeat what you've said, um, just so you know that ahead of time. So go, yeah, let's go ahead. What's your comment or question or about warm-ups? All right, thanks for the question, Nidish. Nidish wanted to know um, what kind of warm-up or what is the proper warm-up that he should do prior to an FTP test, and that is actually, I'm really happy that you brought that up because uh, when we were talking about those 20-minute effort papers, there there was one that someone actually did the experiment on different warm-ups for a 20-minute power test. And the reason why they wanted to look at this is because, and I've I've mentioned this in the show before, is that not a lot of people realize it, but there is actually a very, very specific warm-up to be done in a 20-minute power test. Prior to a 20-minute power test, that 
Coggin and Hunter prescribed in their book. But again, we've talked about this a lot in the podcast as well, is that there isn't a lot of scientific evidence for what they did. There's just a lot of conjecture that's going on. Um, but this paper that was another paper by Barranco Gill, and basically what they found was there was no difference between the warm-up that Coggin had and the uh, like a more standardized kind of quote-unquote scientific warm-up that would be at 60% of VO2 max. So that probably, that number is not going to, uh, 60% of VO2 max for 10 minutes. Now, uh, like you said, that number is not going to mean a whole lot to you because of, um, you have to have a VO2 max test to do it. So um, I think the best way to describe that is going to be, I don't know if you were around last week for the podcast that was getting recorded, but that's, Intensity is going to be in the moderate intensities exercise domain, which is going to be the lower domain. And it'll probably be about what you would, at the same intensity that you would do like a four or three hour longer ride at. So you can ride probably at that intensity for about 10 minutes. And yeah, I think you probably should be good to go. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I, I would say... General riding for ten minutes at least, um, yep. probably, yeah. Especially if you aren't coming from a high volume training background, then keep it less than half an hour for sure, because you don't want to be getting to the point of fatiguing. And then, yeah, just um, I'd I'd say a few shorter efforts to elevate the heart rate, and I I'm sure we might touch on whether that's physiologically sound but purely from a psychological perspective just not having that panic of oh my god suddenly this is really hard and i haven't had haven't done anything really hard yet yeah that's part of why i think the elevated heart rate comes into it in the warm-up and just a few shorter sharper efforts but the key i think the key is just not doing any damage so making sure that you're still not really putting too much strain on yourself yeah i mean personally i i like to do at least a minute at what i'm what i think my 20 minute effort's going to be at and so if i had a 10 minute warm-up i might do that for like minute seven or something like that but i'm never going to do a 10 10 minute warm-up i'm usually doing like a 20 minute warm-up and and so yeah I i would typically just for my own state of mind, I would do one minute at the intensity that I'm going to target in that uh, functional threshold power test. But again, what is the science behind that? Is it is it different for someone who is well trained versus some you know these actively fit people? Those are good those good good questions to kind of dive in at a different time. Is um, that answer your questions, Nidish? Then yeah yeah okay awesome. Was there anyone else that might have questions in the audience? All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for your question there, Nish. Cool. And we can roll on to the recommendations uh, to keep things moving here. I have the recommendations that came out of Bishop's mm-hmm. paper. Yep. So his recommendations, duration between 10 to 12 minutes, intensity, 60 to 70% of VO2 max, which is approximately 75 to 85% of FTP. Mm-hmm. Recover for equal to or greater than five minutes, but 
not more than equal to uh, 20 minutes. Performance may further be improved by insertion of brief, non-fatiguing bursts of task-specific of a task-specific nature. So there's your sprints, Cyrus. Yep. Um, there's Jason's uh, things, his target power as well. I think that would. And the target power, yeah. And and for me, as soon as I thought about this, I was like, okay, this is kind of probably the science that Team Sky used for their famous warm-up that came around in 2014 and it, and I've been using it as a template ever since then um, because it, it does these things. It's, it's five minutes of light spinning, eight minutes of a progressive warm-up mm-hmm. up to zone four or five power. Mm-hmm. So in the like the last minute is that power without sprinting. So that's sort of what Jason's talking about. Two minutes to recover and then two minutes with three times six accelerations to fully prime all the musculature involved in cycling. It's a quote. And then three minutes to recover from uh, the above before the start. So that kind of ticks all the boxes, you know, when comparing to Bishop's recommendations. Yeah. Can I um, put in another one, which I have on good authority, is what the Australian team pursuit team will be using this uh, Olympics? next week. Yep. Yeah, in the Olympics. Um, don't ask me. I, this is heavily... <laughs> I can't well, reveal my sources. But, well, um, by, well, by the time by the time the the the, the podcast that comes out, Australia will have won the gold anyway. So yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, uh, this might maybe just before, but obviously, uh, I think this is still from my source varied between riders because they'll have their personal preference mm-hmm. but yeah it's very similar um so they start this there's is half an hour but obviously they're targeting a four minute event or yep. hopefully a, a three minutes 40 ish event but the they're starting with eight minutes of 50 percent ftp five minutes at 75 percent ftp three minutes at 85 percent ftp so one thing to note already there is they're still using FTP and that's the Australian <laughs> Olympic team. Uh, then five minutes recovery at zone two, then a build from 75% FTP through to VO2, which they've defined as 120 to 130% FTP mm-hmm. over a one minute period that build is. So yeah, it's quite a long range to build through and then holding VO2 for 30 seconds the so VO2 max, I assume they're referring to here. And it's also important to note that their event is going to be close to VO2 max, likely slightly above for a four-minute period. That's That would be their target power for the majority of the riders. Obviously, it will depend on when they're on the front and, and so on. But so that's sort of, I think, why the session, the warm-up is, is targeted around that. Then they've got 90 seconds easy zone two, a 30-second VO2, one-minute zone two, 20-second VO2, high, high rev, so 120 RPM, another one-minute zone two, and then 10-second VO2, high rev. So they're not. there's nothing there above the VO2 max power, and then one minute easy off the bike and 20 minutes until start. And a partridge so, in a pear tree. <laughs> yeah. So they've all got, they all have that written out on their stems because obviously that's pretty hard to remember yeah, off the heart. Geez. But it's a, that's a, an example of something that is really strict and 
Well, yeah, go into, but that's not something I would prescribe to my riders to do Mm -hmm. before every race because it's obviously really difficult to be able to have half an hour set aside to be able to do that with no interruptions. It's a closed uh, performance arena, though. Um, You know, like it's a it's a closed discipline, so everything will Uh, be fairly similar. Yeah, yeah, that Um, is a situation where you can do that each time. And uh, I want to wrap up here by talking about. So we've been talking about scripted warm-ups. I want to talk about self-selected, which is you know non-scripted. And uh, because it fits into exactly what you've been saying, Cyrus, I'll give my punchline away as well, that it's sort of what my recommendations are as well from all of this stuff. But uh, there, there was a study done, 2009, and it was actually looking at the effects of prior heavy exercise on energy supply uh, over 4,000 meters in a cy- of cycling performance. And they did three conditions. So the prior exercise is, is a warm-up, just another name, priming, all these names that you can apply to it. They had three different uh, conditions here. Uh, they had a control, they had self-selected prior to exercise protocol, and then they had their heavy exercise protocol. Uh, so the control condition did no prior exercise again. So they just did nothing and then they went and did 4,000 meters. The prior heavy exercise protocol consisted of five minutes of very easy, 100 watts, immediately followed by five minutes of exercise at 50% difference between lactate threshold and VO2 max peak. And then uh, then there was the self-selected and that's that's basically you just do whatever – you want to do pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was done with experienced cyclists, which is uh, a good thing. And then when we look at the self-selected warm-ups, you kind of get a bit of a range here. Durations ranging from 11 to 80 minutes. Cool. And then there's intervals. Uh, say someone did one times 30 seconds, another person did four times one minutes, and another person did 12 times four seconds. So a big, a big range here. And performance-wise, the main finding of this study, can anybody guess? No difference. <laughs> Wrong. Oh, no. There was a difference. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, you trolled me. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'll just uh, I fall, I f- I um, fall for that one. <laughs> okay, so there was a difference where the self-selected warm-up improved uh, their overall mean power output by 6%. During the 4,000 meters. But also it was the same as the scripted or the heavy exercise protocol did before. So there's no difference between those two. It was just that they were both different between the control. Well trained or... So the control was no warm up. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. So something was better than nothing in this case. Uh, They were well trained. They were... It was done in New Zealand. They They were cat one equivalents in New Zealand. Um, And the main thing that I got from this is let's have a look at some of the characteristics of the self-selected warm-ups. And there was three common elements that we can pull away from this. It was a sustained bout of exercise lasting between four and 20 minutes. Intensity was low enough, so so not to perturb blood lactate. So this is uh, kind of, they have around 50% of FTP. And there was one or more bouts at VO2 peak or above. 
And for me, yes, it's just one study, but it does give some evidence to follow the line of if you are forced by factors that are outside of your control, doing something might be better than doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's this thing of chucking in the odd sprint or effort on the back road before you start your local crit is probably not a wasted effort, according to this study. Yeah. Um, so that that fills into this thing of, of what you said a while ago, Cyrus. It's this thing that, okay, let's say they're important. Warm-ups are important, but they're not as important as you think. And the actual structure of that warm-up may not be, may not need to be as structured every single time for you to get some benefit. Mm -hmm. Yep. This is like the kind of research I like to see personally and for my athletes in that it could be beneficial, but you're not going to be harmed if you can't get it in. Same with any sort of supplement or intervention or anything like that. That's sort of the, the dream to see as an athlete because so often things are outside of your control and you can't yeah in this example do the warm-up exactly right or you can't in other examples have your carbohydrate intake exactly right two hours before a race or whatever whatever plan you usually run with but to find that the difference is often negligible or or really small then that's really what you want to see as an athlete because it means if things are going wrong before the start, as long as you end up on the start line, you're not at a huge disadvantage. So I think that sort of is a good take home for athletes that there is not going to be a huge loss if you can't get that warm up done, especially the the super strict and 30 minute ones where you have to be doing everything to the number. And you miss your six second sprints by a second or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, uh, while we, uh, have an environmental physiologist with us. Who? <laughs> let's let's talk about environmental factors. Let's talk about the heat. Let's talk about the cold. If there's if there's some way that they impact your choice of warm up, Jason, Dr. Jason Boynton. You know, you and I talk about strong opinions sometimes and um I don't have a lot of strong opinions, but if I was going to if I was based on everything we've talked about and how, you know, when to warm up, is not that important in the, in the context of it being cold outside and in the context of potentially your core temperature has dropped while you are at the race somehow. I think that cyclocross racing comes to mind for this right off the bat. There's probably, you know, early season road and potentially late season mountain biking and road are going to be also be involved in this, but, uh, or if you're doing, you know, fat bike racing, any of these conditions where, you know, if your core te- temperature is allowed to drop before the race, the warm up is going to be really important. And, uh, there's a good paper that came out of, uh, Stephen Chung's lab. Uh, he was the last author on this paper and they looked at time trialing in trained athletes. I forget how long it was, but um, I want to say the people who had, you know, they had allowed for mild hypothermia to occur in, there was something like a 4% decrease in performance. And so that's pretty considerable. Like this is, so if you think about it, we have to be really careful 
about recommendations about warm up saying, oh, it's not that important because it will be important if it's cold out. Uh, and I, I would, I would feel, pr- I feel pretty strongly about that based on, um, the, you know, that paper and also kind of what would be happening mechanically, uh, or mechanistically. So when muscles are cold, uh, then you are potentially going to increase the amount of glucose that is going to be metabolized there and decrease the amount of uh, lipid oxidation uh, in terms of so it it's cold cold muscles shift your fuel source and that's not good for endurance um, performance because you're going to want to be metabolizing fat as much as possible and typically what's happening in the cold environment there the two main things that are probably happening are related to muscle metabolism and neuromuscular limiters and in that Stephen Chung paper it was actually Ferguson at all out specifically not only did their performance go down but you could also see the cadence went down so that potentially could be related to the neuromuscular part of it and um, so they these things are probably going hand in hand at this point uh, there's also the, the classic study by Galloway Meghan and I think Damien you and I have probably talked about this when we did the, the when you interviewed me about environmental physiology stuff and that's a really classic study about and that was the one that everyone cites to uh, demonstrate this in inverse U that happens with performance and temperature and how we've got this idea that uh, performance is best around 10 degrees. Well, they t- did a test of exhaustion at four degrees, and what they demonstrated in that was that four degrees in these athletes at 70% of VO2 max was detrimental. And one of the things that stands out there is not only were they like not really great trained, but they weren't really highly trained, I should say. They they didn't have a warm-up. They just dropped them straight in that environment. And I've always kind of thought that one of the reasons that they didn't have that uh, the power of the people that were in 10 degrees is, I think, was one, because they... At a, because they're less trained, they don't have as high of a power output and they're not going to create as much um, uh, thermal uh, heat. Yeah, so they're at an advantage from the start. They're at a, dis- <laughs> a disadvantage. disadvantage, yeah, from the start. Yeah. Um, and then you contrast, it's, it's hard to compare studies, really hard to compare studies. So if you were going to look at the study, the first study that I published from my PhD, we didn't see... We saw a lot of physiological differences that were occurring at five degrees, but the there was no power difference between five degrees and thirteen degrees. And but we had well trained athletes. They did a thermal thermal neutral or a twenty two degree warm up for ten minutes before we put them in the chamber. Um, and yeah, they're doing high intensity intervals, so they're, they're well trained and they're doing hard efforts. So that seemed to counter the effect. So I I would say in a cold environment, you're really going to want to be warming up. And then also the other thing that can, that we haven't mentioned is in the field versus what happens 
in a uh, lab is, especially in a bike, is convection. And there's going to be a difference if you're doing your warm-up, especially in a cold environment, if you're going to try to be doing it out on the road or sitting on a trainer because there's that difference of convection or the, or the wind that's going by you and potentially reducing your body temp. So it could actually be harder for you to warm up in this cold environment if you didn't bring your trainer along. And this is why for cyclocross races, I think in particular, the warm-up is really, really important. And it's really important to nail that. And um, so it, contrary to like maybe this road, these road race conditions that we were talking about, I think with a cyclocross racer, they should be really mindful about having that block of time before the race to warm up on a trainer. And, and then the other thing is in that warm up, getting back to the psycho- psychological side with cyclocross is you should be trying to hopefully get out and do at least uh, one loop of the course so you can get the psychological benefit of actually pre-riding the course so you're not, um, which is, it's very hard to figure out uh, efficiently and effectively the a course on the startup lap when you have people riding in front of you. So I always try to recommend people like within their warm up to be thinking about the pre-riding the course. And I think the last kind of tangent, a little bit of information about right, uh, cyclocross warmups that I tell my athletes is just kind of like this take home method, uh, message for them is if I can see an athlete's number on a cold day cyclocross race at a cold cyclocross race, then they're doing it wrong. There's a warm up that is because there's one of two things that are happening. They've either have pinned their number on a jacket and they're going to be super hot during the race. They're going to overheat or they've, they've pinned their number onto their skin suit and they're probably not going to be warming up effectively with that skin suit on. I don't know if that kind of makes sense to you guys, but if, if I see someone warming up at a cold cyclocross race, I shouldn't be able to see their number unless they're warming up inside of a sprinter van or indoors or something like that. So, uh, total pro, uh, Bob Downs comes to mind. <laughs> he used to bring his sprinter van out and warm up inside of that at the cyclocross races. Yeah. So then the, the contrast is what happens in, when it's too hot. And we kind of talked about that already it's for me, the detriments are, it's all about core to skin temperature gradient. And that just kind of incorporates everything. So if you have a high core temperature, then that score to temp, that skin to core temperature gradient is going to decrease. If you have a high skin temperature from the environment, then that skin to core gradient is going to decrease. And you know, if both of them are hot, then again, you're going to have the same issue. Um, and if you're looking at as the that skin to core temperature gradient decreases, then the detriments are, to performance are going to increase. So if again, if you are, if you are artificially raising that core temperature too much before the race, then it's going to be potentially detrimental because you've decreased that skin to core gradient. And decreased skin to core gradient is going to decrease VO2 max. And 
you might think, well, if I'm not doing a VO2max test, why does it matter if my VO2max decreases? But I mean, and I'm trying to think of an analogy, but if I point at you right now, Cyrus, in Europe, you have a VO2max right now, right? Like if I, if I, you have a theoretical VO2max at this second, and that's what it means is that you're, and so when you exercise in the heat, your ability to exercise is around the percentage of VO2 max is in a time trial situation is going to, is going to stay the same. And if your VO2 max is decreasing, that means that your performance is decreasing because the percentage yeah. of VO2 max is staying the same. And so the, again, and if you want to think about this, I mean, with the core temperature, um, devices that they have out there to measure i haven't i have still have to hook mine up yet and start playing around with that but if you think about things like heart rate and oxygen consumption the heart rate's going to probably be uh like those things decrease gradually over time and you might think that your core temperature and muscle temperature would decrease similarly but they don't like it's a very very slow decrease and so you really have to kind of be very aware of increasing your core temperature too much before uh hot races so you would probably want to and this is the it. stuff that i've yeah. been looking at lately mm-hmm. as well uh, the, yeah. the all these papers around pre-cooling mm-hmm. um yeah not not for skin temperature because it's uh, Everything I've read just says that that's for uh, perceived exertion, mm-hmm. but for actually making an impact on core temp and then trying to hit the start line with a lower core temp so that eventually when it does rise, it doesn't get to that point where it's the point of no return, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I know when it comes to the pre-cooling stuff, my uh, former PhD colleague, Kester Chu, is got... Um, that stuff pretty nailed. And I know she came out with a meta-analysis when, during her PhD, so that would be definitely be worth uh, checking out. And I mean, pre-cooling is probably a whole topic in itself, and it would be really good to have her come on and, and chat about it. But yeah, she's, you definitely should be checking out some of her work. She was doing stuff with triathletes and stuff like that. So yeah, I was actually in one of her studies, and it was interesting. Um, we were talking about what trained people versus untrained people in the warm up. So I had to, I being, being trained and, and she had me and then she had like actively fit people. And I was a total outlier on a number of things. And one of them was like sweat response. And so that's the other thing to think about warming up in the heat is how much sweat you will lose, uh, in that process and the sweat you lose that, that ends up on the ground before the race isn't going to be helping you at all during the race, right? And you have to re if you're trying to replace your fluids and all that kind of stuff, um, it's probably better not to have be sweating overly too much, I think. Yeah. And this is that, that balance. Yep. This is that balance between doing too much and too little, not doing anything and trying to, yeah, not have those negative impacts, uh, impact the performance itself. Mm -hmm. Um, that's pretty good wrap up there. I think we covered most aspects. The, f- the funny thing, like for me, the science is moving, but nothing has changed as far as the recommendations go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's still just general broad strokes here and there, 
but it, it lies back on the person's individual circumstances. I think about the context, think about when you need to actually perform and then how the how the warm-up is timed in comparison to that and uh, and just, again, comes back to setting a template maybe and then trying things. And then from Cyrus's perspective, it's it's don't be too locked into that. Things are going to happen. Yep. And Yeah, I think what you can take home from this listening is if your coach is saying you need to be doing this warm-up every race, ask why. And like, if you have the warm up routine that you have to do every race, say, well, what if it's hot? What if it's cold? Like, if I'm racing to an under and it's 38 degrees, am I supposed to be out there doing the same warm up as yep. if I'm racing a club handicap in August? In this is for people in Melbourne. And then, yeah, likewise, people in Europe, are you going to be doing the same warm up as we had a question during this podcast for your FTP test? at the start of your base training as you would use for your race then like for any if you've got being prescribed this identical warm-up for each session i'd really be asking some questions about where that's coming from Mm -hmm. and yeah sort of learning to be adaptable with it because i think that's going to be the key in actually finding something that's useful for races and benefit performance yep i would agree um all right so i guess we'll wrap it up here thanks to everyone who contributed today in the podcast thanks to my co-hosts here uh you can find out when we release episodes and when the weekly room is scheduled by following our facebook twitter or instagram accounts on twitter we are cycling at cycling club pod on instagram we are cycling performance club Or you can also follow the Cycling Performance Club on Clubhouse. And if you want to come and contribute to the conversation, you just uh, make sure that you check the app for the time that we have the conversation scheduled. That's all I have. And uh, until next week, thanks for coming by and listening to us.